This is the iMoveU podcast, getting you private practice ready. We give you fresh ideas on mindset, communication, and clinical skills so you can have a fulfilled career. Got a special guest today, Daniel Arbella. He's, he's actually, we were just chatting before this, but he's actually one of my favorite because he's got really good knowledge, good evidence base. But something I didn't know is that he films himself dancing. And I think that's really cool. I think we need more personality in and amongst health professionals. So thanks for joining us, Daniel. I, um, we've got a topic we're going to cover, but I'm also going to ask you some funky questions along the way. The, the big topic yeah. just at the top is the false dichotomy of biomechanics versus the BPS model, which is something we're probably all struggling with. It's probably something that is generating the most conversation on social media pages. Mm-hmm. So we will definitely hit that topic at some point. Uh, but can you tell us a little bit more about you, Daniel, where you practice and how people can find you first? Yeah. So I'm an exercise physiologist working with, Movement 101, the clinic that I'm at full-time is at Woolai Creek, just next to the airport. Uh, we've got a private gym setting here, and I'm wor- I work with a massage therapist, Pilates instructor, and two to three physios at a time. Um, so multidisciplinary team, um, that's where I practice. I am just recently joined the Knowledge Exchange, doing some mentoring through them. They'll be mainly online kind of one-on-one consultations. Uh, we'll be rolling that out shortly. So you kind of get the first sneak peek into what I'm actually doing. So it's awesome. <laughs> so if Brennan's listening, I apologize if we weren't meant to say that. Nah. Um, <laughs> and we're looking to get into the online learning platform, um, looking to do more lectures, workshops, and seminars. So I'm really excited to share the knowledge. And you just cut out right at the start when I introduced you, when I said um, you, do, you do film yourself dancing. Can you tell me where that came from? <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, I feel myself dancing. That sounds very uh, nar- nar- <laughs> narcissistic, but like um, I have been hip hop dancing since my year 12 formal. So I approached the form. I'm like, I don't know how to move properly. I took a few classes and this is where I'm at today. Was it seven years, eight years? Don't even know. Um, just, it's just fun. It's just my form of expression. And, and that, I'm down to battle any physio, any EP, no. <laughs> does that resonate with you? Like, I, I reckon you would have had a, you, you definitely would have thought twice about posting something like that, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah. There's, yeah, yeah, you're putting yourself out there, 100%. Yeah. Is that, was that um, something that you, you set out to do or you just got brave one day? A bit of both. So I had experience already with performances and battles um, and performing in front of people. So that was like my gateway towards graded exposure to going on social media and having a worldwide audience. So I was, I was fine with it. Still nervous, still always nervous, but yeah, it's part of the process. Actually, I feel like that's all that's missing, right? Like there's so many really good health professionals doing what they do and, and good research, good videos, good exercise videos. But I just really love you've brought, you've brought that to it. Uh, it's like, mm. it's something I'm mindful of as well. And I just think that's what's missing. I, I just, yeah, keep going. It's bloody awesome. Thank you. I'm having fun. So as long as uh, it's, it's not, you know, cringeworthy dance moves, I'm, I'm happy. 
No, it's good. It's good. Yeah. Tell me what, what's got you curious at the moment. So what are you curious about in curious. your EP health professional world? Curious. So I was thinking of this one. I was hoping you weren't going to ask me, but I'll, I'll, I'll hit it anyway. Um, so curious, like I am curious how other people practice. I'm curious how the keyboard warriors, myself included, I'd be curious how I practice. I'd be curious how like Meekins, the, the gurus of the world, they actually apply what they know, um, how they embody what they teach, um, and the challenges that they face. So I, I would love to like have a secret camera where I could just see the consultations that they do, or just like walk in um, as just to shadow them, because because there's lots of people that I, I follow and I admire and I respect their written word, but I haven't seen it in action. So I, I would love that. Like I'm curious how people would practice. Yeah, it's really interesting. Hmm. So it it sounds so confident and direct and sure online, doesn't it? Like this is what you need to do. This is what the evidence says. Yeah. But a million percent sure that's not what happens in in each and everyone's consult each and every time. Yeah, it's it's never straightforward. There's always going to be barriers according to the person. We're we're dealing with with people. We're not dealing with robots where we can just do one thing apply it and then see what happens afterwards. It's not like a, an equation per se. Straight equation. I think the thing that gets me, the thing that I've been thinking about a lot is why, why we, are we spending too much time, energy and sometimes negative energy on the semantics of it all? Like even, even if we got five to 10 to 15% of the consult wrong, we are still going to get a result. We are still on the most part, going to empower people to move more or move better. Um, sometimes I read the online debates and I feel like people are coming from a place of 95% of health professional consults are still put a heat pack on you or do some ultrasound. And yeah, that's, that's just sometimes the, the vibe I get. But generally, maybe I'm optimistic where I think 95% of people are doing it the right way. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, again, how can you tell? Like we can't tell through, through Facebook discussions, through debates online. Um, yeah, it, it's, hard, it's hard to get a, a whole picture. And I talk to people from, from different countries and they're faced with the same problems, but their, I guess their context is a slightly different. They might be more behind in certain aspects and more ahead in other aspects. So we, we can't really know what's behind that keyboard or what, what, why that person is, is arguing with semantics necessarily and what their their purpose of arguing is are they there to show everyone how good they are and to prove a point or are they there they're there to show an example of what you can do what are some options to do yeah so it, yeah the nuances of of public debate yeah podcast for another day but we're curious about the same things do you think we could ever do that do you think we could ever film consults for a day and just see what happens with client permission. Mm. I think there is definitely scope. I know, and I can definitely vouch for Anthony Lowe. He puts out a few uh, patient demonstrations from his course yeah. uh, of attendees. And that's pretty valuable. Like the, the way that he can show and demonstrate what he does through a consult yeah. and walk us through that walkthrough process. Um, doesn't mean we have to apply that as a recipe, but just an, as an example of how he applies person-centered approach 
mm. uh, to female athletes. That's pretty, pretty cool. It's doable. We should do it. We should get, mm. we should get a few people to film their consults for a day. I wonder with permission, what would, um, yes. what would happen from that? That'd be, that'd be yeah. a cool group. That would answer a lot of questions. Yeah, probably not. Bring up more. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, the questions never stop. Thanks, mate. I'll, let's get into this. We spoke a bit earlier about what, what we might talk about, and you came up with the false dichotomy, uh, biomechanics mm-hmm. or biomedical versus the BPS model. So tell me about that. You lead the way. Yeah, man. Um, so it's a dichotomy that I see a lot, uh, especially amongst uh, new grads as they go through a system where it's very much like this is how not to kill people in uni. This is how not to harm. This is, these are all the red flags. This is the traditional way of treating musculoskeletal issues, conditions. um, And this is what you're going to be assessed in framework, framework, framework. And then they would see a few Instagram posts or a few arguments of like um, in terms of, they get exposed to pain science for the first time. They get exposed to the, the arguments, perhaps the controversies around what is evidence-based and what is actually being practiced. So they can be met with the problem of on one side, there's people that are under the pain science label that are promoting uh, more of the psychosocial issues. I, I can definitely see where they're coming from with that, from their perspective. And on the other side, there's the, the more traditional um, ways of practicing that focus on the bio, the biomechanics of how people move and moving in a correct way versus a wrong way. So I can definitely see that there's in both the fitness industry and the health industry, when it comes to musculoskeletal issues, uh, two sides of the, of the coin. And it's, and I guess maybe as humans, we like to divide things. We like to have an in-group and out-group and we base that uh, off what, how we practice in our own biases. So for me personally, it was, there was a bit of journey like navigating through that as well and learning and applying more of a in-between uh, middle space where you apply both of them. Um, you can't just separate the biomechanics from the talking to someone, finding out their goals, finding out their expectations, and understanding that there's more than just, um, a, it's not just talk therapy, we also have to move, um, has been, uh, I think, the main game changer for, for me personally and for the way I approach certain topics or cases, case reviews. It's, it's easy for us to trichotomize the bio, the psycho, the social, to list them up and say, okay, we're gonna treat the bio here, but there's definitely some psychosocial issues that we need to address. Okay. So with a patient in front of you, how's your sleep? And then, and they're like, what, what are you talking about? Like you, I didn't say anything about my sleep or assume on the other hand, if there's no biological um, kind of indicators for, for improvement that they must be stressed. And it's, it's, it's not an and or situation. Mm. It's more of a, looking at the whole picture, what is that person saying? What have they done in the past? And let's look at it from a whole picture scenario where we can't separate the bio, the psycho and the social. So it's, it's always all three. It's, it's 
there's never a case where we can separate the one over the other. I think mm. it's, it's good to know that we can uh, reduce it in from a learning perspective because yeah. we like models. We can't just say, do everything and no nothing works, do whatever mm. you want. Yeah. So from an educational perspective, I can definitely see the value. I feel like the model has been applied in a way that separates all the different components into different groups. And they forget that there's a person behind that shoulder. There's a person behind that ex their experiences in the past. There's a social environment they're getting back to outside of the clinic that impacts the way they move, the way they think. So I really like the inactive approach in, in terms of the way that they structure the person, the context, the environment, all as one. Um, and I think that's important for, for people to, to understand that it's, it's not an and or situation. It's not a, a psychosocial uh, situation. It's not a biomechanical situation. There are, so there are some caveats to that. I believe that there are cases where some issues are more relevant than others, but you'd see that in your consult. You'd see that in your assessment. You don't have to say this person is a bio, this person is a psychosocial and treat them like they are separate. Should you, I find it's interesting what you touched on with, maybe it's for learning purposes where mm. if we can have a, a group of questions that would screen out the social and the psycho and the bio, I could definitely imagine how young health professionals would want to go but there's my three boxes and, and I just want to make sure I cover each. But in doing mm. that, in doing that, they're effectively almost saying that they are separate. Yeah. And they're forgetting to build rapport mm. and they're forgetting to build trust and therapeutic alliance and they're forgetting what the person's goals are. Yeah. They're treating, I guess the, the conditions or they're treating the, these, these arbitrary boxes. They're not treating the person. Do you think it's ever healthy to, uh, I, I found like when I was first introduced to that framework, I found in my brain, I was like trying to put percentages to it, but in a way, yes. what, you're, what you're saying is that is literally trichotomizing it. But in my brain, I want it to be like, well, that's 70% bio. And mm. there's definitely, you know, 10 to 20% of incorrect beliefs that we have to work on over time or, Mm. Uh, stress and sleep is contributing how, how do you how do you feel when someone is like attributing percentages to it all mm. so i've mixed feelings i think it's good to to be aware of those different factors and not just look at one only one mm. sector if you'd like yeah i think from a bird's eye point of view if you could step back and realize that those incorrect or unhelpful beliefs are affecting the way they move and the way that they move uh, might be impacting on their symptoms. Absolutely. And the way that they move and the way that they think about their movement can impact the way that they interact with other people in their environment. So I think it's, it's more of a, let's look at one thing that we can change in this whole system, whether it be a combination of biopsychosocial or uh, just one, and let's see how it impacts the whole picture, the whole person and their yeah. experience. I think, I think you touched on something good there. It's like the, 
I think the reason my brain would, was segmenting that is like, well, what's the biggest thing I could possibly change for this person right now? Mm. But in reality, you would, have, you, would, you would have no way of knowing what those percentages are. We're, take, we're taking our best clinical guess, right? As we always do, yeah. Mm. And, and we base that off the assessment and we base that off our relationship with them and we base that off how much trust we built and how much rapport we built. And I think it helped, it's helpful for maintaining that communication to then see, okay, how'd you pull up the day after? Did we do too much too soon? Or yeah. just, just uh, tell me, how did you respond to that one intervention? How did your social environment respond to that? Were you able to, to interact or get back onto the sports field? Or was it like, nah, I don't wanna go there. Okay, let's talk about it. Let's, let's, let's work to get you back. Yeah. I guess what makes it tricky as well is in reality, you might get them to hydrate better and sleep better and meditate and prescribe exercises within a calendar month and you would have no way of knowing which intervention provided in reality. Again, it's all of them, right? I think yes. that makes it tricky for young health professionals. Yes, and they would like a straightforward answer. Mm. And it's hard to sell the fact that there is no straightforward answer. What do you think the future is for the, the BPS framework? The future? Mm. I think the future lies more, at least I hope it lies more in the application as opposed to the, the fitting, figuring out the, the nitty gritty 1% difference of that model. Yeah. I think perhaps maybe a framework that can help us apply the concepts better, that would be the future as opposed to you know, looking into uh, changing it, modifying it in a slight variation. Because the inactive approach was just looking at the whole picture of the context and their environment and the person and how it all interacts. So it was, it was the same model, just zoomed out, yeah. I feel. And people were like, oh, it's a new model. Let's, look, let's abandon the BPS because let's join this train. Um, and so humans will naturally join new trains and new models. I think it depends on where the research takes us, but I, I would rather it lean more towards the application of the model of what we have. Do you see any difference in that framework between professions? So EP, massage therapist, physio, chiro? I see the difference in the history of those professions mm. and what they went through in their four or five years of tertiary education. Yeah. I see a lot and, and then their context of where they're working mm. in, in the same way that you could take a look at how the social impacts a patient. You can take a look at how the in environment of the clinician, their clinic owner, their space impacts the way that they treat. So I definitely see the, the as we went through in, in your course, which is awesome, the branding of the profession makes a huge difference in the person's expectations and the clinician's expectations, you know, I should probably crack a back because this person is expecting it. The person walks in expecting to crack their back. If they're seeing a Cairo, just a crude example there. Um, and therefore so it will work better as well. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, yeah funny, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 So um, there's definitely a lot of pre-framing involved within the, the professions. I, I just, as, as evidence comes out, um, I'm just struggling to see, too much of a difference between 
the professions in terms of this, their uh, ability to help people in the, the pain and the musculoskeletal world, because there's the, there's the argument of we should all just merge as one. We should yeah. just be a musculoskeletal specialist. Mm. So a lot of what we practice, if we are evidence-based, should be, and person-centered, should be relatively the same. It shouldn't be biased towards, I'm a chiro, therefore I must crack backs. Or I'm an EP, therefore I must prescribe exercise. And I must prescribe a lot of exercise. And I must give a supervised exercise program. No. What if the person might benefit from a different approach? Who says that you can't um, look into uh, different avenues or different things that are outside of what maybe the social media or media would think of for a physio or think of for an EP or think of for a chiro? There's a couple of things there, really good. Uh, tell me what you think about what you touched on there about all the professions merging. What, what are your mm. thoughts? Practically, so even if practically you think it'll never happen, what do you think it, it might look like? And do you I think it's a good going, thing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to be pessimistic and say I don't think it's ever going to happen. Mm. I, I think that the egos involved and the history behind each profession in terms of from the tertiary education standpoint the politics behind the change i i doubt i don't see it happening yeah anytime soon uh, if we think of was it 17 years before research goes to practice i think this will take like 170 years before <laughs> we merge all three or four even uh, or five into one yeah. i think there would be advantages for the 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 clientele the patients out there if there was just one it would probably make it like there'd be less uh, paradox of choice. It'd be quite simple. You see this person if you have a musculoskeletal pain or condition. Yeah. Um, I just don't see that happening. Yeah. Well, you also touched on like the history and culture of each profession. Yes. Which um, being a biased physio, uh, I really love that about our profession. I think we really have swung to both ends, which is an advantage and a disadvantage. Uh, I think the massive advantage of EPs is they have a relatively blank canvas relative compared to chiro and physio. So that's it. That's a huge strength because you, you don't hold any biases. You just do what the evidence says. That's really refreshing. Uh, and I also, I think of chiro as well is like, it is so difficult for them to step outside of their history and culture, which has come from non-evidence-based practices. So it would, it would be really difficult. It would be really difficult to merge all those professions. Yes, yes. It, it would be, a, and it's a struggle that they would have to face a lot um, mm. in their practice, like managing the expectations of people walking in to see a chiro and then finding out that the chiro actually does more of an active approach and manual therapy or, or like a exercise when they were expecting to be, you know, lying down on a table and, and hearing a few sounds coming out of the back. And do you think so? Do you think Akaro would exist if they stopped doing that? Same argument for physio and hands-on. Do you right. think they would still continue to thrive? From a sense of like actually like business perspective, they would thrive, or, or yeah, okay. just people if seeing they, them. If so, if they didn't apply any of the manipulations, mm. so this is, this is like hypothetical situation where across the board, no chiro would manipulate, for instance. And, and no physio would do soft tissue and we all yeah. kind of united under one banner. Oof. Is this, is this like the utopia now we're talking? 
Uh, <laughs> um, it would be tough because like you'd have to change societal expectations. Mm. I'd, and I wonder the impact of, of how that would like play out because people would be, I'm sure there's plenty of people dependent on those services right now. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's, um, it's, it's out there and they are regularly attending for that service and they are expecting that service. It's like if we were to go to Woolies and take out all, all chocolate milks, like maybe there'd be less riots, but there, <laughs> there would be some kind of outrage and, and like confusion, like where did it all go? Yeah. And then, then there might be a black market for Minips. So <laughs> this is, this is getting way overhand here. I don't think this is a utopia anymore. So yeah, I mean, look at, look at alternate, uh, alternative medicine. There's still, they're still out there. There's still yeah. the option for them mm. and people, if they want them, they can get them. Mm. So I, I don't think that having a complete ban or bar of all manual therapy techniques or soft tissue releases or manipulations would be that helpful in the long, in the long term. And tell me, do you do any uh, hands-on or manual therapy where you are? Uh, as in me personally or the, the clinic? You, you personally, I'd say. Personally? Uh, yes. so I don't do the like soft tissue work. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm biased. Whenever someone asks me, I, I shake hands and I yeah. pat people on the back. And I apply, I, I apply touch. So yeah. I, one of the awesome things that I learned from Back to Roots, so shout out to, to Luke and Paul, mm. was clay. It's a, manual, it's a guided manual therapy through movement. So yeah. it's about putting people in positions, moving their arm up, in a place that they into a range that they perhaps were fearful of, or they haven't had that much experience of and tell them to stay there and then mm. letting go and just watching how they move and then moving their thoracic spine and their body in a different range, different plane of motion and then letting go and stopping them there. So that I think the power of touch is huge in, in exercise, in movement in general. So if we're going to manipulate someone's, yeah, if we're going to manipulate someone's central nervous system, we may as well do it whilst doing something of high value, right? Yeah, yeah, why not? Yeah, so yeah. guided, definitely guiding through hands is, is one of the best forms, mm. I feel. Yeah, how good. Yeah. I like that. It's, it's something that I'm curious about because obviously that, I think I, just touching on the BPS model, Mm -hmm. There's been, you know, even we've spent an hour today, countless social media threads on it. But sometimes I just, I shrug my shoulders and I'm like, well, we've been fucking doing that for 20 years. Why is this a new thing? And it, mm. so, so sometimes I wonder why there's all this conflict and negative energy between groups and on social and between professions. And I'm just like, my mentor, when I started, who was a dinosaur relatively, like, he still did some stuff that you wouldn't want to mention today, but of course he operated in a BPS framework. So sometimes I kind of wonder like, what's the big, what has changed? What's changed here? Is it new or is it just that it's come to pass or it's, there's been more evidence on it? What's your thoughts on that? I think there's more exposure to it, to, mm. to this different sides of the argument. Thanks mm. to the rise of, of Facebook, Instagram. Yeah. And the ability to now interact directly with researchers. Yeah. And it's huge. Like we can just message uh, someone that we, we follow and that puts out research and go directly to the source. Um, and then that also 
kind of encourages them to get into the debate as well. So there's a, it's like the, the field has grown where everyone can put in their opinion and perhaps not too, like, it's hard for, for me to, to give an opinion because I don't, I don't know what other people are doing and I don't know how they're applying their practice or yeah. what they're saying to their patients or their clients as they practice. Yeah. So I think it's good for the, the exposure to, to have these discussions and conversations. Um, I'm not too sure what it, what it would have been like if we didn't have social media. That would be yeah. interesting. Do you think much would have, ch- that much would have changed? Because again, I, I reflect back and of course we were doing the BPS framework 20 years ago. Like, of course. It, it may have been, again, if we trichotomized, it may have been skewed towards the B, but mm. of course my original mentors and their mentors would uh, talk about how someone feels about their movement, their fear towards the movement, their sleep and their stress and their diet. Uh, mm. Or is that not what you've experienced? Based on my limited personal experience, I would yeah. say it's more along, along the, the, the bias. We all have biases. And mm. I feel like what I've experienced, even with, amongst exercise professionals, we bias exercise, right? So we yeah. want to have movement that looks aesthetically pleasing and mm. that is biomechanically, you know, to the rule book. Yeah. So I've seen that and I, have, I haven't seen enough of that personal interaction where okay, just do it differently and see how it feels. And let's just break this rule just to see how it feels. Um, I've yet to see too much of that because I feel like there's barriers in place where it would look uncomfortable for people to to practice in this way. Um, And I feel like they would just, uh, I'm not sure where this train of thought is going, but I'm not too sure where... um, I'm not too sure how other people uh, would, would have practiced 20 years ago, number one. And I'm still yet to see too much of that person-centered approach based on what I've heard from, from mentees, from, from other students, mm. from the discussions that I see. I, I, I'm just visualizing when we used to do TRA contractions in my first clinic, right? And yeah. so we did TRA but then I would do more global movements and then I would do um, Jefferson curls. And mm-hmm. so it was this, it was always an interplay of what was sexy at the time, TRA stuff sure. into, well, I want to build you into global and then I mm-hmm. want to build you into a flexion based pattern, which you may have had some uh, poor beliefs around. Mm. So yeah, I sometimes get the feeling like a bad health professional would ramp up fear to keep someone coming back. Sometimes I think that of the online discussions. Sometimes I think we're ramping up this fear that there's so many bad practitioners out there and that in itself is what keeps eyeballs on, on posts or comments or threads. That's just where my mind went when we were talking about that. Hmm. And, and what, so what do you think of like calling out the calling out culture? I see it a lot where I guess people want to, to call out the bad practices or call out other bad practitioners mm. and then cause controversy. And then they get a lot of views and comments and likes for the, the benefit of their exposure. Yeah. 
100, yeah, 100%. I just think it's probably not the place, is it? Because you, there's no way you could get context, culture, history that all in a, all in a Instagram or Facebook post, right? Yes. So it's probably not the place, but then is the only solution to not contribute. Yeah. Mm, I would say, think about that yeah. pulling back completely. Yeah. 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 Do we just uh, perhaps ignore and just try and put out good content mm. that's helpful and useful and yeah. showing, showing how we practice like we've mm. mentioned before. Yeah. I think that would be the most valuable form of, of educational content. That's the best solution that we have mm. right now. People still like to fight, though. We've got to let them fight. Oh, we've got to let it happen. We've got to let people debate and, yeah, let fires brew. It's good to see. It's entertaining. entertaining. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it brings the entertainment back. Tell me, tell me about uh, your top two or three resources right now. Top two or three resources. Funnily enough, Facebook would be, would be one. I am yeah. a part of some of the, the groups out there that where there are researchers, where there are practitioners, where there are case studies, case reviews, discussions, um, and ideas of, of approaching uh, conditions, people, uh, situations. And I get a lot of value from my newsfeed, which is what I call my PubMed in a way. Mm. Uh, having everyone there in one space um, and having the interactions with, with peers and colleagues from around the world, that'd be one of my resources. And number two would be the interactions I have with other, with my mentors. So I, I still continually reach out to the specialists in their respective fields, physios, chiros, osteos, EPs, trainers, coaches, um, and just pick their brain and see how, uh, see their perspective, see how they apply the evidence, um, I find more value in that than, than necessarily sifting through reading the literature. Uh, I still sift through the literature and give my own interpretation, but I also build on other people's interpretation and the knowledge that I don't know as much as I could. And there's other people out there that definitely know more in their respective fields. I'm just combining it all. How do you specifically do that when you say you still do enjoy going back to the research? What does that process look like for you? So I'd search up a topic or a condition. Um, I'd actually look into the, if I can get the full text of the articles that people share on socials, on, on the groups, and just take a look, just sift through what's the method, what's, what's the research looking into, uh, dive into a few rabbit holes, and then spend too much time and get lack of sleep, and then wake up the next day and practice. Um, so, I, yeah, I try to disseminate the info as much as possible as well. I try to translate it. I believe there's value for people to, to teach it, to, to express what is in the research uh, to a wider audience, to the layperson. And I've, I've gotten a lot of value just creating a page and sharing the information that other people put out and trying to translate the research into easy to understand layperson terms. How often do you do that? I, I'm, again, I'm thinking specifically for the young health professional. Um, that's a really great tip already what you've provided there. How do mm. you, how often do you do that and how long, how long do you spend on that? So for the, the posts that I make for like social media, I think sifting through research, sifting through, mm. sifting through, I would say I'd, I'd look through my newsfeed and which is now 
based pretty much entirely off the groups that I follow. Um, it's no longer, you know, social media as much friends. Um, and I'd look into what, what stood out for me, what was the most interesting. Uh, and then I'd aim after work or during breaks to look into that, to look into what other people have taught, what have discussed about that. Um, and then just sift through it. Like I'd say a good, at least half an hour to an hour a day of, of doing that, yeah. whether it's, whether it's looking at discussions, whether it's, uh, looking at how that applies to people in my calendar, whether it's YouTube podcasts such as these, I'd definitely include it as part of my, my day-to-day lifestyle. It's an awesome reflection because I do think a lot of young health professionals don't know how much to do or what that looks like realistically. So yeah, yeah it's a good tip. Thank you. Um, I, I just want to wrap up with where people can find you again, just as a reminder before yeah, we say goodbye. Absolutely. Yeah, man. Um, so I am on Instagram and Facebook. You can find me at Arbilla Exercise Physiology. That's one word. I'm still hoping for EPs to cut like at least four syllables out of their profession. But for now, it's a lot of syllables. <laughs> um, that's where you'll find me if you have any questions, if, you're, if you'd like to argue against me or if you have any um, positive or negative feedback. I honestly welcome it all. I think it's part of learning. I know I learned through through asking the hard questions. So please, I'm, I'm up for any, any questions, any queries. Thank you, mate. I appreciate your time on a Friday afternoon. And we'll chat again. I know we've got a hell of a lot more to cover. Yes, yes. Appreciate Thanks, it, mate. mate. Thank you. Talk soon. Bye. This is the iMoveU podcast, getting you private practice ready. We give you fresh ideas on mindset, communication, and clinical skills so you can have a fulfilled career.